As we were singing uh, that last song uh, as a congregation, I was just sitting there thinking, how in the world does uh, someone like me, uh, who grew up in Pennsylvania and lived in Dallas, Texas, end up in a church in Vancouver, about to preach a sermon on Good Friday, this important holiday for our faith, in front of all of you. How does that happen? And so I was sitting there just feeling the weight of that. Like, I don't know, I'm trying to do the math in my head and it's not adding up. And then I remembered it's because 2,000 years ago someone died for us and relieved all of our guilt and our burden. And in him we find our sufficiency and our power. And so this morning, I'm not coming with the sufficiency and power of the new kid on the block from Dallas, Texas, who's now at Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm coming with the sufficiency and power of an ancient and true shepherd who wants to do a fresh work in our hearts today. Amen? Well, I can do that. So this morning, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about uh, gifts, right? And what makes a gift good? Dan Arrow, a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University, says two things makes a gift good. It alleviates guilt or burden. And that is, it relieves a burden off of you of having to buy it, or it alleviates a burden that not having the gift may add to you. And secondly, he states, that it continually reminds the receiver of your love for them. So it is something that the person will have for the long term and can be a constant reminder of the fact that they are important to you and that you love them. So those are the two things that this professor from Duke, this psychology professor from Duke says, this makes a good gift. And to the level that that gift uh, fulfills those things uh, measures the goodness of that gift. Having just experienced my first Vancouver winter, well, it's still going on. I'm in the present, present tense, experiencing my first Vancouver winter. I realized that a good Christmas gift for a Vancouverite is a raincoat. I understand that it would be something that I would use every day, and then I would feel a burden if I didn't have it. But what if, after having received the raincoat, I would walk to work in the rain and get soaking wet? What if I just hung it in my closet and I only thought about it once a year? Or what if I received the raincoat and wore it underneath my shirt and in turn did not enjoy the benefits of, of the coat? 2,000 years ago, we were given a gift that was infinitely good. In that gift, we received complete relief from our guilt and burden. We have received something that we are reminded of every day that we are loved at the highest cost to the giver. Today we remember the day when we were given the gift of the cross, an act that would eternally free us from our guilt and is the ultimate love, ultimate act of love for us. Some reject that good gift because they do not feel they need it or it is too good to be true and they would rather try to earn it. And for others, we say we receive it and yet on a daily basis we live lives that ignore its goodness and try to work out through our own goodness. This morning I want to look at our need for Good Friday, why we should receive it, and how we should respond to it by living in its goodness. 
So again, if you still have your Bibles open, thank you, Raymond, for reading the correct passage. I was really going to need some power and sufficiency if you read from a different passage. But I'm just going to focus on one verse today from the passage that was read, and that is the last verse, Hebrews 9, 15, and I'm going to read from the ESV. Hebrews 9, 15 in the ESV says this, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here today to remember what you did for us. Not just to remember, but to make it functional in our lives. That we may respond to it. That we may let its truth and its goodness soak into the soil of our lives so that every breath, every action, every word, every deed is spent praising and giving glory to you. Because you are good, Father. And you loved us in a way that wasn't temporary and got us through a couple storms, Father, but in a way that is eternal and secures a place for us in your eternal rest. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, whom you raised. It is in his name we pray these things. Amen. So I want to look at four words or concepts in this verse in order that we may resound, or that they may resound in the depths of our heart this morning. And if you have your Bible, you may want to keep it out to that verse, because we're going to look at the transgressions, the covenant, the mediator, and the promised eternal inheritance from that verse. Again, that's the transgressions, the covenant, the mediator, and the promised eternal inheritance. So how did we get here? How did we get to Good Friday? How did we get to this verse uh, in Hebrews 9? Uh, The value and worth or level of good can only be found by reminding ourselves why this happened. So we have to start at the beginning. And we all know that the Bible is not a random grouping of books from authors over a course of 1,500 years. It's one story of God's redemptive plan for mankind because of our transgressions. So first we look at our transgressions. So if the, if the Bible is God's redemptive plan for mankind, the value of this plan is directly related, related to whom we are being redeemed. That is to say that a redemptive plan that reconciles us with the guy across the street may be important, but it's worth as much as, it, as we have a need for a relationship with the guy across the street. So with whom does God's redemptive plan reconcile us? It is himself. And who is he? He is the creator. Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So he set things in motion. He said let there be light. And there was light. By his word he creates. He speaks things into existence. This one true God is all powerful. He created man and woman and set them in the garden. He gave them a free will. In Genesis 2.17 God told man and woman, that if they rebelled and ate of the tree of knowledge, that they would die. We know that by die in this context, and what happens is that they would be expelled from the garden. The garden of perfect community with God, that they would be cut off from Him and separated. And in Genesis 3, they committed the sin or transgression that we commit every day. They wanted to be God. 
They wanted control just as we do each and every moment of our days. And by doing so, they created separation between themselves and God. And a need for reconciliation. A need for a plan of redemption. And in Genesis 3.15, God not only lays out the punishment for the rebellion, but he also explains that there will be one who will be bruised by the enemy, but will in turn crush the head of the enemy. And for the rest of the over 1,100 chapters of the Bible, we see how that verse plays out for the rest of eternity. This one true God is all-knowing. But he's not just all-powerful and all-knowing. He is your creator. So again, if the value of a redemptive plan is found in who we are being redeemed to, this redemptive plan's value is infinite, as it reconciles us with the one who created us. In this plan, we are afforded a way back into the garden of his community. This plan puts back together what we have cut apart. So our transgressions have created separation between us and God. Our verse in Hebrews 9.15 is the crescendo of subordinate verses in the chapter that are addressing the blood covenants of the Old Testament. It is connecting the dots of sacrifices under the previous covenants with the new covenant that is mediated by Christ Jesus. This morning I want to look at one Old Testament blood covenant in particular. It is found in Genesis chapter 15 where Abram is promised an eternal inheritance. In Genesis chapter 15, Abram has a vision. He said, fear not, for your reward will be great. Abram asks, okay, what will you give me? God assures him that he will have an heir and that his offspring will be like the stars of the sky. And it says that Abram believes God and his belief is counted as righteousness. God promises great blessings for Abram's offspring and tells him that they will possess a land, that his offspring would have an eternal inheritance. So again, Abram asks, how am I to know that I will possess it? So God tells Abram, you want to know? Go get some animals. That's how you know, I guess. You get animals. So Abram knows what to do with these animals, though. He cuts them in half and lays them across from each other. A deep sleep falls on Abram. A firepot and a torch pass between the animals. Abram is promised that his offspring will receive the promised land. So this is all a little confusing for our context and for me. Because we don't live in a culture like that. We live in a culture that signs contracts with PDFs and pens and paper and Dropbox folders. That is the culture that we're used to as far as signing contracts. But this was an oral culture where things were reenacted and oaths were made. I remember when we sold our house in Texas before we moved up here and we signed contracts under penalty of having to pay some money if we broke the contract. And we know with that contract there were conditions that our house had to meet and that the buyer had to meet. And we both signed at the seller and the buyer, and if both met those conditions, at some point the transaction happened, and the house was transferred to the uh, new owner. But in this contract, what is happening? In this ancient covenant, what is being said here is if either party does not live up to their end, may they be cut off or cut apart like these animals. And walking through them is how you signed that covenant. That is a tough penalty. 
We see this penalty being called for in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 34, 18 and 19 says, And the man who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, and the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. So in Genesis 15, we see Abram fall asleep and a fire pot and torch pass between them. These terms for fire pot and torch are the same terms that are throughout the Old Testament when we're talking about the presence of God. So, Abram falls asleep and God signs the contract by walking through the parts. He makes a promise and passes alone through the cutoff animals. This was astonishing because typically when a king is making a contract with a lesser person, with a vassal, the king didn't walk through. It's not up to the king to say, I'll hold my word. It's up to the lower person to walk through and say, I'll keep my word with you, king. And if I don't keep my word, may I be cut apart like these animals. But what we see in this, in this story in Genesis 15 is that only the king walks through. Remember, what set this ceremony in motion? Abram asked the Lord in verse 8, How shall I know? God, how shall I know? I believe you. How shall I know that I am to possess it? How can I know for sure? How can I have a confident hope in these promises? How can I live a life that depends and leans on these promises? Oh Lord God, what will be the sign for me? So that I can rest. So that I can take refuge. Because Abraham knows if this covenant of promised land and of heirs is conditional, he is in trouble. If the weight of keeping the conditions of God's covenant is on his shoulders, he is in trouble. So he asks. It's what we would ask. If you were to ask me today, name the provinces and capital cities of, of Canada, I would be in trouble. I would say, well, is there another way? Is that the only way I can receive? So Abram asks. He wants to know because he wants to know. He wants to have assurance. It's what we all do when someone promises us something great. We want to know. How do we receive it? How can we be sure? And so in answer to this question, the king who made the promise also assures it by accepting the consequences if we don't fulfill it. What we see here is God saying, Abram, here's how you can know. I, the Lord and God, will not only give you these things, but will also assure them through receiving the penalty of the covenant being broken by you and your offspring. So this promised land has no condition on you beyond what verse 6 already stated, that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, your belief in and of the Lord is your part. So why don't you go to sleep? Why don't you rest while God works out the promise and the penalty? So picture this scene. A dreadful darkness had fallen and the sun had gone down. I'm sure in the air you could still smell the sacrifices that had been cut apart. And in that darkness, God passed through the halves so that Abram could know for sure, so that he could have confident hope, so that he could live a life that depends and rests on the promises of God. But today is Good Friday. And we are gathered here to remember the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, which happened many centuries later. 
Yet in Luke's gospel, we see something very familiar. Luke 23, 44-45 says this, It is now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So now we've talked about the transgressions. We've talked about the covenant. We will look at the mediator. This darkness over the land is the setting for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As I've been studying the historical concept of crucifixion, I've been burdened by the pain that our Lord experienced that day. It is a gruesomely slow way to enact justice. And yet there has never been or will there ever be a man who is more undeserving of death than the person of Jesus Christ. And he really suffered the passion of the cross. Why? Would it not have been better for him to just allow himself to be stoned on one of the several other occasions by the religious leaders? Why escape all of that in order that he may suffer this kind of death? To have his flesh torn apart and to be hung up for all to see so that he would suffocate and have his heart slowly give out. Why suffer that death? And as painful as the beating, the mocking, the nails, and all of that was, we see that his true passion, which means his suffering, is found in Matthew 27, 46, when he screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that scream in the darkness that was over the whole land, the one who lived in perfect community with the Father for eternity was cut apart. He was cut apart from him. He was separated. He was undone. And that was the pain that was unbearable. In that moment, he experienced infinite anguish. And for what? Because centuries, centuries early, earlier, man had made a decision in the garden to rebel and cut himself off from perfect community with God in order that he may be God. And years later, another man, Abram, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God made a covenant with that man and his offspring so that they could find rest, so that they could find the promised land. Again, the promised land in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is compared to his rest. So that is saying that the children of Abram would find rest one day through the promise that God was making on that evening. A promise of eternal inheritance. And when Abram asks, how can I know these things, God? This promise, how can I know these things? A dreadful darkness fell upon him. And as the sun went down, God passed through the animals alone that had been cut apart. And in doing so, he signed the contract for both of us. He made the promise of blessing and he assured it by putting our fulfillment on his shoulders as well as the consequence for our rebellion. And so because of our rebellion, centuries later, once again, in the dreadful darkness, he, Jesus Christ, had to be cut apart like those animal sacrifices. He had to be cut off from God so that we could enter the promised land, so that we could enter the promised eternal inheritance and find rest. The world tells us to spend our entire lives trying to find rest. The goal is an early retirement, a great vacation, financial security, a life of ease, 
So we work 70-hour weeks trying to secure that rest. We meet with financial planners who have a good track record and invest in them, trying to give us 20 years of rest at the end of our life. And then we sit back and hope. We hope the stock market goes up. We hope our health holds up. We hope our job is secure. And we wake every morning with anxiety because we know that none of these things are for sure. So if you're here this morning and saying like Abram, but God, how can I know? How can I know for sure that I will find rest? This is Good Friday indeed. We don't have to sit back and with shaky, a shaky sense of hope. We know because of his word. This hope is not volatile like the stock market. This hope cannot be cut short by disease. This hope is not based in our worth to the company. We can wake with complete confidence because the God of creation passed through alone and has revealed his redemptive plan in his word and it came through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. This is a good Friday. Jesus Christ paid the price of being cut apart on the cross so that we could be put back together in his rest. So if you're here today and you believe in his promise and you believe him, then you can be equally assured of its fulfillment if you, like Abram, believe. All of this truth creates the foundation of the beautiful good news of Hebrews 9.15, which says, Therefore he, being Jesus Christ, is the mediator or the go-between of a new covenant, which is our promise, so that those who are called, that is, those who believe him, may receive the promised eternal inheritance, that is, his rest, since a death has occurred, which is Jesus Christ on the cross, that redeems and reconciles us from the transgressions, our sin of rebellion, committed under the first covenant. We started by asking, what makes a good gift? It alleviates burden and reminds the receiver they are loved. That's the Duke professor's definition. What gift is more good then? By that definition, what gift can live up to the infinite goodness of the gift of eternal salvation through the cross for those who believe? Our transgressions have created our desperate burden for the cross, and so it is eternally needed. And it is a blazing reminder of his love for us because it cost him everything. How should we live in the goodness of Good Friday? For those who have believed already, we may say I have received it, and I am no longer in a functional need of it. That is to say, I wanted that so I could be saved. The cross does indeed justify us, but we need it every day. Is Good Friday just a date on the calendar? Do you have a date on your calendar of when you initially received this gift? Is the gift like a forgotten raincoat hanging in the closet while you walk through the storms of life? This gift that we have been given in Good Friday ought to clothe us each day. When we feel the guilt of our sin and the conviction of the Spirit, do we, with repentant hearts, take it back to this gift of the cross and lay it down? Or do we carry that guilt or burden and try to work it off as repayment? It is meant to transform our minds and hearts. Every word. We have a confident and living hope because we know that this payment was received by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from the dead. When we marvel at God's creation of the North Shore Mountains, may we also remember that he who created those things, 
He who created us also assured us of our inheritance through his loving work if we believe him. We can stop living lives that are trying to fulfill a covenant and we can rest in it. We can live lives that are compelled to goodness because of his goodness. Well, I have a choice this morning. If you've not yet believed God and the work of Christ on the cross, then today is the day of salvation. When you can receive the freedom from guilt and the eternal love of the God who created you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to even call you Father. That privilege comes at a very high cost. It doesn't come at the cost of our good works. Father, it came at the cost of your Son, Jesus, fulfilling what we could never fulfill, living a perfect life, receiving the penalty of our sin, being cut apart, being cut off from community with you. We call you Father because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. Father, we need your Spirit. Allow your Spirit to draw us close to you. Heavenly Father, may your Spirit also remind us daily of our need, of our desperate need for Good Friday and what it means. Heavenly Father, may we live lives that point to your goodness. Not because we are good, but because you are infinitely good. May we receive this gift. May we enjoy it. May it be functional in our lives. And may we tell the whole world about the one who created the mountains and who loved us so deeply that he sent his son to die on the cross so that we can enjoy your rest. What a beautiful gift. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray all of these things. Amen.